Welcome to episode 243 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Uh, uh, today, I'll be interviewing uh, Representative Jim Langevin of Rhode Island. Uh, um, he's likely to be the chair of a pretty important uh, subcommittee, the House Armed Services Emerging Threats Committee, which does... Uh, SOCOM and DARPA and uh, Cyber Command uh, um, oversight. Uh, and so uh, uh, plus um, he's got a certain amount of uh, technological affinity himself because he's quadriplegic in a wheelchair uh, that he occasionally turns into a Segway. So we'll cover that in our interview. Uh, uh, for the News Roundup, I'm really excited to have Denise Howell uh, with us. Uh, Denise is the host of the long-running, maybe the longest-running legal podcast, This Week in Law. Um, it's disappointing, Denise, that you're the um, host of a podcast that has 200 more episodes than the Cyberlaw podcast, and you are still younger and better looking than I am. That's just not possible, Stuart. I'm, <laughs> I'm not willing to accept that at all. <laughs> but thank you so much for having me on. I'm thrilled to be here. No, it's great. I, I love your program. I listen to it regularly. It's a, uh, it's a it's more of a stroll. If 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 we are uh, rushing through these stories, you stroll through them and take your time with them and uh, produce a lot of useful uh, uh, insights that uh, we barely have time to touch on. Uh, uh, so I'm really looking forward. To, uh, we'll, maybe we'll do a little more strolling in this uh, episode than we usually do. So thanks for coming. It's my usual gait, but listeners tell me they speed it up so they can get through it all in time. You know, I I do that on all podcasts. I think um, you actually listen better if you run it up to at least 125, and I've done it as fast as 1.5. Uh, uh, you can absorb it all uh, and uh, drives my wife crazy when she gets in the car and I'm listening to it at that speed because she thinks everybody sounds like chipmunks. But uh, I think uh, it's just like, um, you know, uh, more efficient and just as likely to give you the information you need. We may just have I to embrace it and do an Alvin and the Chipmunks Christmas thing here on your show today. It's it's a deal. I'm just hoping that my students aren't listening because I'm imagining my student evals now saying, please talk faster. You can do your hour long class in 35 minutes. <laughs> that was Gus Hurwitz, uh, associate professor of law at uh, the University of Nebraska. And uh, uh, he introduced us to uh, the fact that today is the 25th anniversary of the introduction of Doom, which is responsible for at least half of the people on this podcast getting into tech. I promise not to sing happy birthday, but I might uh, challenge everyone to a death match. If you, if you do, you're going to have to sing it as Alvin. Okay. Uh, also joining us, Nate Jones, formerly with the Justice Department, National Security Council, uh, Counterterrorism Office, uh, now with Culper Partners. Uh, uh, Nate, welcome. Thank you for having me, Stuart. And uh, last but surely not least, the irrepressible Nick Weaver uh, uh, from UC Berkeley, the man who brings who, who holds our feet to the tech fire when we start um, waxing legal uh, and uh, depart from uh, uh, the reality of tech. So, Nick, it's great to have you as well. Thank you. Okay, so uh, speaking of waxing legal and holding our feet to the fire, I think we ought to take a quick trip down under. And once again, I, I you know, Denise, I, I, uh, 
I have to say, you have bumpers. You have little musical interludes that tell people what they're going to. I've never figured out how to uh, do bumpers for our show. Uh, uh, so I'm just going to say, imagine we're going down under to talk about Austra- the Australian Parliament's uh, uh, controversial encryption bill. Uh, uh, Nick, do you want to kick this off? Yes, the devil's in the details. So the real question is going to be, what is the meaning of significant structural weakness or whatever that language is? So let's use concrete examples. iMessage can accommodate the Australian request in a nanosecond. I've written about it. You just basically create a hidden extra account. The problem is, is you have systems like Signal, which can't without introducing significant structural weaknesses, the sort of weaknesses where you get a secret in the hands of the Chinese and the Chinese are able to wiretap everything. And that's a real problem. So we don't know the devils in the details. And that has this huge impact. So the language, the the bill says that the uh, Australian government can come to tech providers, pretty much all of them, and serve them an order saying, we want you to find a way to give us access to the communications of uh, your system. They cannot ask for the introduction of a systemic weakness. And that is defined as a weakness that affects a class of technology It does not include a weakness that is selectively introduced to one or more target technologies connected to a particular person. So you can see what they're getting at. They're saying, don't create a hole for everybody. We want a hole for Nick Weaver. The problem is, is in doing that, there's no effective way to do that without introducing holes for everybody in most cases. So iMessage, the reason why iMessage can qualify is it has a hole, that it does support the addition of silent accounts because there's no key transparency. But there's no such way to introduce, say, a vulnerability into Signal without doing that. So Signal, it's the same code for everybody, so you can't do a customized install for Bob because Signal's actually not in charge of distributing the code. And Signal, you can't introduce a custom intercept for Bob because Bob would see it with the uh, key transparency. So the question is, will those arguments fly or not in the Australian court? So the, there's actually – this isn't a court or at least it not at the first instance. It's basically an argument you make back to the government when they ask you to do something. Uh, uh, they do have the ability to uh, ask for voluntary measures that would make it possible to selectively uh, create a hole uh, for a particular <laughs> reason. Unless you're Skype being bought out by Microsoft for the benefit of 702 collection – that's not going to happen. So let me ask Denise, you're out there in Silicon Valley. Uh, you shared Nick's view uh, that uh, um, the companies there are just going to uh, say, we're not interested in changing our technology to help the Australians. Oh, absolutely. And, and I'm not even sure that Australian companies who are subject to this law are capable 
of, of altering their technology in the way that this law wants them to. I guess, as you say, the devil is in the details and we're going to see what happens. It seems like the bill itself is an exercise in public relations and opinion control. I mean, they're trying to build in some safeguards that are trying to address or at least, you know, begin to be a response to what Nick has raised here. Uh, for example, and again, I think it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out and how it winds up working because there are two kinds of requests that can be made, right? There's this technical assistance request Mm -hmm. and also a technical capability request. And it seems like the technical capability one is the more, uh, that has the most teeth, right? It has the most ability to, um, to require actual changes in the, in the way the technology is working. Yeah, I think you're right. Exactly. And and in that case, there's some sort of an appeal process where you can dispute a technical capability notice where there's going to be a former judge and, quote unquote, a person with technical expertise <laughs> to judge whether the proposed backdoor is reasonable and proportionate or is one of these impermissible systemic weaknesses that the bill says it won't require companies to do. So, in some sense, it's going to be taken on a case-by-case basis. And and this language seems to be addressing the arguments of people who would say, well, you simply can't do this. You're going to compromise everyone's system. No, 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 no. We just want to compromise on particular uh, access to particular people. And it seems like this is, you know, this is how we're going to make sure we do it. I just, I'm with Nick. I'm not sure that you'll ever, if, if these appeals are to actually have substance and validity, I'm not sure you'd get through that process. I'm less sure that uh, the tech guys can can navigate that. The, the standard ultimately, if I'm reading this right, is uh, you have to uh, demonstrate a material risk that the introduction of this whole will allow otherwise secure information held by a someone other than the party you're targeting, uh, to be accessed. Uh, uh, so uh, they say it's a systemic weakness if you add something that will or is likely to jeopardize the security of information held by another person. And that means a material risk that the information will be accessed by a, an unauthorized third party. So you have to have a pretty good reason to believe some third party will have access to this. Let me ask a very concrete question to, to Nick. Um, the Ray Ozzy solution. Ozzy's solution is basically to say we're already updating the phone and the computer. No. No. Well, why is that? Why is that not sufficient if you can target your updates? That is actually not Ray Ozzy's solution. What Ray Ozzy and Stefan Savage are about is the going dark device problem, not the going dark communication problem. And the going dark device problem is actually a lot easier to solve because the first thing you can do is make it so that you have to get the device in hand, which eliminates so much of the systemic risk. Right. But if you are doing for communication, which is what the Australian bill seems targeted as as much as anything, you always run the risk of basically having some sort of magic number or infrastructure that if the Chinese get a hold of, they can compromise. And we've seen this happen on multiple occasions. So 
Google's lawful intercept mechanism was compromised by the Chinese. The lawful intercept mechanism. I, can I stop you there? I, I don't think that's true. I spy who knows. There, 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 there are reports that Google's intercept list was browsed, or at least the the Chinese who broke into Google in 2009 tried to get access to uh, that list, and w somebody trying to get access who wasn't really authorized was uh, caught in their logs. But I, that's not the same as as their mechanism being compromised, or maybe even the access compromised. But we don't know. That's part of the issue, and we do know that the lawful access mechanism in the Greek cell phone system was compromised by parties unknown. That's true. And so whenever you build these mechanisms, they're such attractive targets too. A bit of bribery? Hell, how much could you get no, with come on a million now. dollars spread around? Nick, uh, everybody has a mechanism for updating the their software, their devices, and Every one of those update uh, uh, mechanisms could be compromised and would be a disaster for the user. And yet uh, we keep adding those capabilities in because we believe that on balance, the security gains from that are worth the security risks. Uh, and if we want to compromise the update mechanism, you are attacking the computer equivalent of vaccines. And Yes, we have seen the update mechanisms compromised too. That was the whole thing behind not Petya. So I think you know you've, you've you've put your finger on something though, which is device access. Where there's a pretty plausible argument that when all is said and done, if you have the device in hand and you say to Apple, "Get me in using the update," uh, that uh, Apple's going to have to argue. But there's a material risk that uh, otherwise secret information held by a third party will be compromised by our doing that. I think that's a that's a hard road to hoe for them, isn't it? Except that for Apple, they've designed the phone so that in order to update the phone, you have to unlock the phone first. I, I think that's the interesting question. I, I'll ask Denise. However, do, do, you, do you think that, that Silicon Valley is going to double down and say, not only are we not going to make it easier, we're going to do everything we can to make it impossible to comply with the Australian law and then say, yeah, nanny, nanny, boo, boo, sucks to be you uh, when the Aussies come to us? I, I think so, and I hope so. <laughs> um, I, I, I do think, you know, to the extent they can do it, I think companies like Apple will will say, you know, well, we're not subject to this law, and we think it's a bad idea, and we think it's a bad idea for a number of reasons, because we've been talking about this in terms of a law that applies in Australia, but we can't really think about this law without thinking more globally than that, right? I mean, you've already brought in uh, Howard. U.S. and other companies' devices going yep. to be able to operate in Australia under this law? Will Australian companies be able to export their technology to other countries, say GDPR-governed countries, that this may come head-to-head -head with and conflict with? I think that GDPR actually comes in in a couple of ways. One, you know, we could get into whether or not a device that complies with this law complies with the GDPR. But the other sort of more insidious way I think the GDPR provides an example of what may happen with technology companies is sort of the opposite of what you're saying 
Stuart, uh, some may dig in and say, nanny, nanny, boo-boo, as you so eloquently put it. Others, particularly ones operating in um, Australia, may say, oh, as many companies have done, you know, we've seen the dominoes fall with the GDPR as far as, oh, we've got to comply and we've got to comply now and we don't want to have to hash through uh, whether our compliance is sufficient or not. We're just going to be very, very proactive about it and do what the government wants. And before they even come to us with one of these notices, we'll just make sure we have these capabilities in place. And I'm, I'm concerned that we may see that kind of approach happen from companies in Australia who just don't want to have to get into a dispute about whether they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. Nick, I cut you off. Uh, uh, last thoughts on this topic? Uh, it's going to be an amusing cluster. <laughs> yes, that's for sure. And uh, look, this is uh, – we know quite well that the uh, Aussies were um, encouraged by the other English-speaking countries, the Five Eyes countries, to go down this road uh, uh, in a variety of multilateral meetings with principles adopted that are pretty consistent with what the Aussies are doing here, which means that uh, my guess is that uh, New Zealand and uh, the UK and maybe Canada are all watching this thinking, uh, well, if the roof doesn't fall in, maybe in a year we'll try the same thing. All right. The Marriott hack. Not only is it like the second biggest in terms of records compromised, individuals compromised, it's developing an interesting uh, reputation as not just a commercial hack. Uh, Gus, can you bring us up to date? Yeah, so this is uh, this one of those stories that just keeps on getting uh, more and more interesting, but also one of those stories that we seem to know less and less about. So there's a uh, Reuters report out a couple of days ago that uh, relies on three unnamed sources investigating the Mary attack uh, that suggest uh, the Chinese government was somehow implicated or involved in the attack. Uh, we know very little about the details other than those assertions. There are some uh, tools apparently that are uh, attributable to uh, Chinese government uh, actors that have been involved, uh, that have been found on Marriott systems. But uh, it's really hard to know what to make from that. It's kind of a soft attribution. Nobody is saying we got them dead to rights. They're saying that's what it looks like to us, but we've, we're still working on it. It's almost as though they're waiting for the U.S. government to say, yep, it was the Chinese. Yeah, but I think the bigger story here is it appears that uh, almost everyone has compromised Marriott systems. <laughs> so there are uh, reports going back several years of uh, uh, commercial uh, compromises of their systems, of uh, the Russians in their systems. Now we have reports of uh, uh, the Chinese in their systems. Uh, one of the uh, major compromises uh, appears to be the result of one of their uh, cybersecurity contractors actually opening a malicious payload, thinking that they were investigating that, and that's what compromised their systems. So uh, it seems that everyone has, uh, uh, over the last few years, gotten into Marriott, which leads me to the question, what the heck is going on with the hotel chains and their cybersecurity? Uh, the only surprising thing, uh, perhaps, is uh, that LabMD wasn't a hotel chain. If you think Wyndham, LabMD, and Marriott uh, as uh, uh, three of these uh, big cybersecurity cases, what's going on with hotels and their security? And I, I think there's actually a really important uh, question here. Hotels are very large, uh, very customer-oriented, franchise-based operations. And I think that they have very 
difficult security requirements that they're trying to balance. I tend to be on the side of let's not default to uh, uh, blaming the uh, uh, actors and saying, oh, you guys were just really bad and competent actors without understanding, was there some actual business decision or calculus here? Um, and I wonder whether or not there is a particular difficulty in securing large franchise-based, consumer-focused operations that poses some unique security challenges that we should be studying and thinking about, uh, at least in the legal context, if not uh, uh, the technical context. A lot of people, when you check in, you expect your history to be available to the uh, people who are checking you in, but they're really a different company owned by uh, uh, different individuals than the last Starwood you, uh, resort you stayed in. Uh, I think the other issue here that emerged was Starwood had done its own roll-up of other hotel chains. And every mm -hmm. time you uh, acquire another company with its own IT system, you're basically in, uh, infecting yourself with anything that has gone wrong with their system in the last five years. Yeah. And this is both on the uh, customer service and the business valuation, and also, frankly, on the antitrust side, a really important calculation um, and uh, aspect of, uh, of these businesses and how we think about liability that's not really well appreciated and understood. Uh, so looking at uh, an industry that uh, I uh, uh, know particularly well, if you look at the cable industry, one of the reasons that the cable industry has such a terrible track record on cu customer support is because when you think about one of the any of the large cable networks today, they're actually an agglomeration of several hundred or several thousand independent MSOs, uh, uh, cable operations, each of which over the last uh, 5, 10, 15 years has been folded into uh, an existing system. And it's really hard to integrate all those different systems in a way that at, at the back office level, at the technical level, works seamlessly. And uh, uh, that's led to a lot of difficulties operationally. And when you're looking at uh, uh, all of the mergers that we've seen uh, with uh, what has became Starwood and then uh, Marriott, that's a really hard thing to do right. And it leads to both uh, inheriting challenging liability. Uh, that's uh, the, the story of Verizon and Yahoo. Uh, and also inheriting uh, and trying to uh, integrate complex technical systems in ways that uh, can create vulnerabilities. Well, and one last uh, observation here. If you're wondering how it was there was all this passport information uh, in their files, uh, I think you can thank the Europeans. Because when you check into hotels in large parts of continental Europe, there is a requirement that they get your passport copy, the number, something of the sort and record that so the police can come by and look at the passports of everybody who's checked into the hotel. So, Denise, yeah. if you thought the GDPR was going to prevent the creation of security holes uh, on behalf of law enforcement, uh, I think the experience with passport collection suggests that GDPR is pretty friendly to uh, governments that want to get access. It's just companies that they that it screws over. Yeah, good point, Stuart. Okay, so we've beaten up the Europeans, we've beaten up the Chinese, we've beaten up the Aussies. How about the Saudis, the Italians, and the Israelis? Uh, Nate, uh, uh, how does all how do all those folks end up in one scandal? <laughs> uh, you know, I think most of your listeners are probably familiar with the background of this case, but for those who are not, Jamal Khashoggi was a uh, U.S. permanent resident and, and Washington Post columnist. 
On October 2nd, he walked into the Saudi consulate in Turkey, uh, where he was met by a 17-man team of Saudis who were sent in from Riyadh and and promptly murdered, dismembered, uh, and uh, disposed of. Since that time, the world has been fixated on a couple of questions. The first was whether the Saudi government and the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS, uh, played a role in the assassination. Recently, a, a CIA assessment affirmed uh, what many suspected from the outset. Uh, it assessed with high confidence that the Crown Prince MBS, in fact, ordered the assassination of Mr. Khashoggi. And uh, that seems to have resolved that first question in the minds of most people, with the exception of President Trump and Jared Kushner. Uh, and a quick tangent on that, this this story, again, keeps raising or keeps alive the broader concerns about Mr. Kushner's coziness with his uh, telegram or signal pen pal uh, MBS. But the reason this is relevant to, to your question, Stuart, is the, the question that's left open is the question of why. And, and that's still subject to a lot of speculation. And one narrative that's been emerging for some time and, and was, uh, I think, articulated uh, pretty well by David Ignatius in The Washington Post last week has two parts. The first is that the Saudi government and MBS in particular have been very proactive at trying to shape their public image. A lot of this, of course, stems from the fear uh, that that flowed from the Arab Spring and autocrats around the world began to worry that that threatened their hold on on power in their countries. And it's uh, further complicated by uh, MBS's controversial way in which he ascended to his position as crown prince and um, and his, his worries about that slipping away. But where this intersects with, with those countries and with technology is is the way in which the Saudi government has invested in developing technological capabilities to first off identify and silence uh, dissenters, those who are fomenting narratives on social media and other platforms that they uh, dislike and don't agree with. And the second is to figure out how to use their platforms, um, including on social media, to advance their own preferred narrative about the government and, and regional politics and the like. And with respect to the former, MBS has has apparently focused part of his effort on developing a powerful set of surveillance tools by partnering with technology companies in Italy, in the United Arab Emirates, and in Israel, of all places. And the Israeli one in particular would require a government license to export it to Saudi Arabia, which has, among other things, prompted uh, some litigation there um, by a, a close friend and ally of Jamal Khashoggi, and he's he's su- he's suing uh, the company that developed the uh, uh, hacking capabilities in Tel Aviv. Uh, right. because he says uh, they – so this is a, a Saudi dissident going to Tel Aviv to vindicate his human rights. So, you know, this is a different world than the one we grew up in. Very different. And um, yeah, and he, he claims that he his communications were compromised by this and that it played some role in, in the murder and assassination of, of Mr. Khashoggi. We haven't, as far as I've seen, seen any direct evidence that it played a role, um, although, you know, his recent criticism criticism of, of MBS in particular and the Saudi government do uh, fit in this narrative of, of him being an inconvenient uh, nuisance for the government and, and that having potentially played a role in his, his uh, assassination. 
And, you know, I think it's it, the one interesting thing about this story is it, it raises some um, the prospects of some potentially low tech methods that are being deployed. And um, Nick, I think, referred to this uh, at the outset when we were talking about the Australia legislation. And that is uh, there were some reports in October that the Saudis were grooming a Twitter employee to help it gain access to user profiles. So they're they're taking out all the stops, it seems here, and trying to um, use the tools at their disposal to crack down on dissent and and as I said, to to push their own narrative. And to me, this raises a, a few interesting things. Uh, first is even if it didn't play a role in in the assassination of Mr. Khashoggi, the Saudi government faces real threats and and has been a critical source for U.S. intelligence on its counterterrorism efforts. And so there are you know, valid reasons why governments, including the Saudis, uh, need these kind of capabilities. But, and this is a big but, it highlights how these tools, even if they can be used for good, can result in significant harm or abuse when they're not governed by a system of rule of law to protect against those kinds of things. Uh, and then, you know, thirdly, I think it, it highlights once again the challenges that the tech industry is facing this this time, largely, you know, companies outside of the U.S. But the the questions that they're facing about their their responsibility to prevent abuses and misuses of their products and, and and answer questions about how they're going to partner with governments around the world and under what conditions. Um, and so it's a, uh, I think that's a struggle that's going to continue for the tech industry more broadly and including companies outside of the U.S. Although these companies in particular are a very interesting case. So the Israeli company is the NSO group. Their Melcode has been used to hack dissidents in UAE, Saudi dissidents in Canada, really evil stuff. And they're really in the Werner von Braun school of rocketry. They don't care that the stuff is being used to target dissidents as much as it is to target terrorists. The other thing that I think is missed is that CIA leak blew a huge amount of U.S. Uh, SIGINT collection on the Saudis, that the mm-hmm. details on the links or details on the le- leak told the world that the U.S. has metadata but not content on the communication between MBS and his aides. That says a huge amount and we probably lost that capability by now already I think you're you're right and I my re- reaction to to Nate's uh, a kind of sideswipe of the president uh, is aligned with that there was so much enthusiasm for showing that the president was not telling the truth when he said that uh, MBS uh, he wasn't sure MBS did it that uh, somebody inside the agency and lots of people outside it or maybe at the uh, uh, intelligence committees leaked a whole bunch of stuff that was designed to embarrass the president for about 48 hours and will cost us uh, capabilities for years. Yeah, and I would definitely agree with that. Um, on Nick's first point, I you know I think it's a valid point about these these companies having a, a different different outlook on the world. But I do think that getting caught up in these kinds of high profile cases and having a light shown on on their practices can result in some pressure on them. And I think that it will be interesting to see how that plays out and how much longer they can get away with those kinds of things. 
they've gotten away with it for years. So we caught the NSO group like two years ago, and they're still selling to Middle Eastern repressive dictators for use of targeting dissidents. So I'm going to ask you some uh, on the next show, uh, Nick, to give me a list of more than five countries that you think it would be safe for them to sell this stuff to. Because, you know, and, and Denmark does not count. Because I guarantee you there were people who would say that selling it to the United States government is selling it to a repressive regime. Uh, there's nobody who can't be portrayed and may not be capable of doing things in their national interest that uh, the rest of the world isn't very comfortable with. Uh, I think it's Except a- that what the key is, is do they get caught? So like Bill and the Citizen Lab folks, they don't actually care about the crooks. And so when the stuff is used against crooks, it actually doesn't show up on the radar of groups like Citizen Lab. There's plenty you can sell to. And in fact, one of the problems that you face in law enforcement in using the same tools that are used by these Middle Eastern idiots is your stuff gets compromised when they screw up. In this world that we're living in, where we're seeing this kind of example of what how governments can do things to other governments, I'm wondering what you all think of how the state of play shifts if this law that we were previously discussing in Australia doesn't rock a lot of boats, as you said, Stuart, and other countries follow suit thinking it's a good idea, and we wind up with a private sector of communication technologies that we know have uh, either are compromised or are compromisable. Since most governments look to the private sector, at least for some of their technology, doesn't that just aggravate the situation? Yeah, I think it, it, it means less and less. Can we just say there's one technology for the world and more and more it's a question of uh, uh, which technology in which country uh, you're going to use. Uh, I remember one time before, for, uh, well, I'll, I'll leave that story because it's probably still classified. Uh, um, <laughs> let, let's, let's finish off with two quick uh, uh, stories. Uh, EMP, there's a report out uh, saying uh, that uh, EMP would be a disaster, like all of our uh, nuclear uh, uh, power plants would uh, melt down uh, uh, just the, the way uh, uh, the Japanese plant did uh, uh, after about uh, uh, two days without power. Um, and uh, uh, Nick, I, you've been kind of an EMP skeptic, not because it wouldn't work, but because it might work too well and lead to worse consequences. Yeah, basically, to generate a significant EMP takes a nuclear weapon. You drop a nuclear weapon in the ionosphere over the U.S. to cause an EMP, we're going to give you 50 megatons by return post. However, the EMP fudsters are good for something in that the same damage can be caused by the sun. If you ever feel like you want something to worry about, look up the Wikipedia page for the Carrington event. If the sun did that today, we'd be looking at somewhere between $600 billion and $3 trillion worth of damage to the U.S. economy. And anything that defends against EMP defends against solar storms. So we should be doing it, uh, even though, really, is it really true that only a nuclear weapon can generate an electromagnetic pulse? Uh, I thought you could uh, come up with something much smaller that would produce a, a more geographically limited pulse. 
You've uh, been watching has... uh, too much Ocean's Eleven, Stuart. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there are designs for flux compression generators, which turn explosive into an electrical pulse. That would only be good for a very small area. And if you want to cause a blackout and can get 500 pounds of explosive to the target, just blow up the fracking substation. It's easier. Okay. And last, uh, uh, Huawei CFO uh, and the daughter of the founder of Huawei uh, was detained in Canada, is now fighting extradition to the United States on charges for uh, export control violations. Quick poll of uh, the panel. Uh, Does this mean that the uh, 90-day tariff truce is probably the only relief we're going to get? Is this going to really so poison relationship, the relationship that uh, the trade negotiations uh, can't succeed? Uh, Gus, you got a a view on that? I'm crying myself to sleep every night. (laughs) Uh, How about you, Nate? I think it's going to be a significant hiccup that, um, you know, I think they'll, they'll have to find a way to work around. And ultimately they will because resolving this trade dispute will over the long term prove too important. Denise? Yeah, I agree with that, that, that both companies are too practical to wind up not doing business with each other for very long or having it too painful to do business with each other very long. But I keep thinking that everything comes back to backdoored phones here. yes in some ways it does Uh, nick last word on that uh a great and glorious charlie foxtrot and i think going to be a trend to accelerate the balkanization of the technology industry and also if i was a c-level executive of a major u.s tech company i'd probably cancel that chinese vacation i'll jump in uh, and add that uh, i agree 100 percent uh, that this uh, accelerates the trend towards balkanization and that's one of the reasons that i cry myself to sleep every night all right and uh hainan island tourism futures take a dive uh, all right uh, uh thanks to our panel uh, uh, our interview this week is with representative jim langevin of rhode island let's turn to that All right. We are here with uh, Congressman Langevin, who is uh, a uh, Rhode Island Democrat, 20 years. uh, Well, 18 years in the Congress going into my 10th term right now. Okay. Reaction. Excited for the the future. Yes. uh, Rhode Island Island has not traditionally had really long uh, seniority uh, uh, representation, has it? Uh, Let's see. Uh, You know, there were... uh, Going back several years, uh, well, so decades ago, I guess, uh, Freddie St. Germain was certainly the right. uh, longest uh, serving, one of the longest serving members of the House, anyway. Uh, but generally, they, uh, you know, maybe uh, 10 years or so has been about the average, so I guess I'm uh, pushing the, you know, the, the envelope there. Well, I, the I'm, I'm, I'm guessing you spend 10 years there, you are basically campaigning almost statewide. There must be a temptation on the part of some to, to run for statewide office, run for the Senate, things of that sort. Yeah, I guess so. Um, and certainly I've you know, thought of in terms of other offices at some point, but uh, I have uh, enjoyed what I'm doing. And uh, for me, it's been about public service and trying to make a difference uh, for the people of my state. I actually entered public service uh, very early on in, in uh, my career as a way to give back and say thank you to the people of Rhode Island who rallied around me and my family when, uh, uh, when I, after I had my accident, left me paralyzed. And, uh, and I didn't know at the time it was going to be a lifelong uh, career and, and uh, endeavor, but 
I've enjoyed the opportunity to serve and enjoy doing what I'm doing. Ambition has not been, you know, a hallmark of my of my my time in politics and, and governments and about trying to make a difference and give back. So you've 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 made a big difference in cybersecurity where you've uh, both been uh, on the Homeland Security Committee. Uh, pressing the Homeland Security Department about uh, cybersecurity issues, and you've also been the ranking uh, member of the House Armed Services Subcommittee on Emerging Threats, which has a lot of cybersecurity and cyber command responsibilities. Uh, Let me start, rather than talking about those particular assignments, um, this is uh, a moment where the Democrats are thinking, what is our agenda going to be as we take over the House uh, uh, in the next Congress, uh, what do you think it is or should be for cybersecurity? Well, I think it's going to be a front and center issue. Uh, I'm going to continue to be very involved with cybersecurity and trying to move the ball forward to further protect the country in cyberspace. I've often said it's both the national and uh, economic security challenge of the 21st century, and uh, we need uh, more focused uh, support and resources in this area. Um, we're getting better organized with each passing uh, you know, a day, month, and year. Uh, we're getting better at, uh, and stronger in protecting the country, but we still don't have it right yet, and uh, we need to continue to build our, our, our own capabilities, but also collaborate and partner more with uh, the private sector, so wherever public-private partnerships uh, are possible, we should do that, as well as, I believe, partnering with uh, the international community. This isn't just a U.S. challenge; it's a uh, it's an international one. And so, uh, establishing international norms and rules of the road are helpful. I think right now it's so the the wild west in the in, in the international space, if you will. And uh, we need to bring more stability to cyber and establish norms uh, uh, wherever possible. So I, I, I'm, I agree with you on that we should establish norms, but I think the idea of going to the UN and writing them down is probably not the way to do it. Uh, we have to demonstrate that we're prepared to enforce them, uh, uh, that if you violate what we think is a norm, you'll pay a price. And uh, that does raise the question, uh, uh, do we have the ability to um, extract a price for people who break the rules, who attack our, our grid, or even just plant malware there that they can uh, execute at a later date. Uh, um, what should we be doing when people take provocative steps like that? Well, I, I believe that we should use all assets of state power to respond uh, when, uh, when necessary, uh, to, to make it clear to enemies or adversaries that uh, we have a number of tools at our disposal. To uh, to protect the country and that uh, we shouldn't be afraid to uh, to use them, uh, but I also do believe that um, uh, that again this is an international challenge. I think norms uh, of behavior, responsible state behavior, in cyberspace uh, should be expected, and uh, I certainly support the U.S. participation, the UN Group uh, Government Experts Process, and other multi. Uh, lateral uh, fora that uh, that provide an opportunity to further uh, refine uh, these uh, these norms. Uh, I also support uh, the, the U.S. taking a, a leadership role in the uh, in the G20 uh, by pushing for a declaratory statement calling for uh, and calling on nations to protect uh, the financial system uh, from cyber threats. By way of example, I think that's a great place to start. 
where we've got to be able to find some common ground on establishing rules of the road. That we're not going to attack each other's uh, uh, financial systems. And, and uh, I think that can hopefully be a marker and a, a placeholder and a foundation for building on other, on other norms. I, 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 I and, think and, that's and I right. We shouldn't, uh, in terms of response, it shouldn't just be you know cyber for cyber. We should use all uh, assets of, of state power to respond to or punish adversaries if they try to try to cause us harm in, in cyber. And, 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 and by the way, whether that's just outing them and public shaming, whether it's uh, whether it's sanctions uh, or other other means, we have a whole host of tools at our disposal and, and need to use them where necessary. I, I, we do. Uh, the ones we've used, indictments, naming and shaming, um, only work if you can actually put, after the first few, everybody gets used to it. It doesn't feel like naming and shaming unless you actually catch the guys. Uh, um, and that's hard where they're uh, state powers. Well, Sanction- it's, hard. It's, it's hard if uh, you're just relying on cyber for cyber means. Right. However, this is where uh, all source intelligence has to come into play. And and you, uh, you know, the, the, the more dots that we can connect, the clearer picture that we have. And we need to respond, hopefully, again, with an international response, not just a U.S. response. But you, know, you can see, uh, for example, when the U.S. responded on, on uh, the election interference, uh, the Russians' uh, election interference. Um, in some cases, we, we threw out diplomats. We uh, we uh, imposed uh, sanctions. Uh, we uh, publicly named and shamed. I think that's appropriate. Uh, on the the other uh, the other front, when the Russians, by way of example, uh, it was believed that they used uh, a chemical agent to poison. Uh, the father daughter in, in, in Great Britain there were enough dots that were brought together they, you know there was high confidence that we knew where that came from and the international community had an international response it wasn't just one thing uh, it was it was all source intelligence sharing and it, it brought it to a level of confidence that we felt that we could and should respond and we need to approach that that same kind of methodology use that same methodology in responding to cyber intrusions or, or, or uh, attacks and it gives you a more holistic picture. Uh, and by the way, you know, doing it with international partners, the more united we are, the more it makes adversaries think twice before acting. So it does seem to me that in the last five years, what has changed for the good on cybersecurity, plenty has changed for the, for the worse, is that attribution happens faster and people accept it more than they used to. Uh, and yeah. and we, uh, what can we do with better attribution to, uh, uh, to make sure we actually uh, change the behavior of the aggressors? Well, in, in, my, in my mind, it's uh, 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 like the, the issue of, uh, you know, you're, if you're playing chess, for example, you know, I'm a fairly decent chess player, and I'll, I'll look to see you know, what, what my opponent is, is doing, and you want to go counter and confront and respond and uh, again I, I believe that by just not relying on one source of intelligence for example uh, you know it's the threat signature where it's coming from per se and, and you, but you understand a holistic picture using all sorts of intelligence you know that's how you uh, that's how you get a, a clear picture and then you have a hopefully a firm response from from there so when you look over all of the federal resources we put into cybersecurity research um, how much of that goes for offense and how much goes for defense and is the mix right? 
you know, good question. That's something else that we are we're looking at right now. It has to be a, a balance. It's going to be an ongoing effort. We, you know, we're you're never going to get to a point where you're, uh, you can say we've done enough. It's going to take sustained effort and research and development, both on offense and defenses, is important. That's why that public-private partnership is is essential. You know, some of it will come from uh, government uh, research and development and uh, and applying tools, and the others might be commercial off the shelf that private sector will uh, will develop. So, uh, as ranking member on the Emerging Threats Subcommittee, uh, uh, you oversee DARPA, among other things, yes. uh, um, and they've started doing more and more on cybersecurity. Uh, um, is there something they're doing that you think is particularly exciting or interesting? Sure. I think the, the next generation of, of cyber defenses will come through um, uh, machine learning and uh, AI, uh, advanced algorithms, and uh, you know, at some point down the road, you know, hopefully, uh, quantum uh, computing you know, will uh, be you know, be a part of the equation as well. But uh, you know, those are the probably the next things that are the areas of investment that we need to continue to look at more closely and invest in properly. So uh, I um, worked at both the National Security Agency and at the Department of Homeland Security, and I used to joke that I was the child of a broken marriage. You've also seen DHS and uh, at least Cyber Command uh, uh, up close. How is that relationship today? Uh, good and getting better. Um, but I will say this, that the Department of Homeland Security needs to continue to develop its own expertise and can't just rely on uh, an expertise from NSA or, or U.S. Cyber Command, although they have the ability to detail people. We, we, we further enable that in the last uh, NDAA uh, that, uh, that we just enacted, um, but Homeland Security needs to have uh, its its own uh, team and experts so that they get very good at what is in their area of responsibility. Uh, and so they're getting better. And we just had a major win with the uh, reorganization of uh, uh, now CISA. Yes, um, congratulations. And, uh, uh, thank you. Well, it's something we've been pushing for for a long time, and I give a lot of credit to uh, Benny Thompson and uh, Mike McCall, uh, pushing that hard for that. Uh, and uh, we have a great new first director in Chris Krebs and, and uh, at Homeland Security. I'm excited uh, what he will do uh, with this new uh, reorganization. But it, it clearly, you know, sets um, uh, it sends the message. This is about cybersecurity, infrastructure protection. And, uh, you know they need to you now continue to have the resources to do the job and get better, uh, better organized and, and, and resourced. But uh, great skill set and dedicated people there. The other thing we need is still a because they uh, they need to have the, the Homeland Security needs to have the, the the authorities to reach across government and and compel departments and agencies to to do what they need to do in cyberspace. That's why a cybersecurity coordinator, by the way, is so important. Um, and I was disappointed when the cybersecurity coordinator position at the White House was uh, eliminated. It's the first major step backward in cyber, by my account, through several administrations. Even in the early days of the Trump administration, they were moving the cyber ball forward. But when the new national security advisor came in, we eliminated the cyber coordinator position, and that was a mistake. Um, and uh, also, we, we need to uh, have a cyber coordinator position at the State Department. Uh, Again, not a U.S. problem only. It's a U.S. challenge, an international challenge, and we need to have State Department have a, a lead role in there too. But right now, there's still not enough clarity of who has the authority 
uh, to coordinate and and who has the carrot and the stick. I know the Department of Homeland Security has been named as the as the lead agency for protecting the .gov domain, but uh, they don't really have the the policy and budgetary authority. Nobody does yet. Um, and I'd like to see a director's position in the White House Senate confirmed. I've had that legislation in the last several years. It actually came out of the CSIS Commission as a recommendation. Mm-hmm. And uh, I believe at some point it will happen. Uh, but uh, you know, so far it, it hasn't. And so OMB is kind of the clearinghouse for what departments and agencies really have to do. Um, right. the, the only thing that DHS can do is a binding operational directive. But unfortunately that has no teeth. Which is why they call it binding, because it isn't. (laughs) Right, right. And so I I brought brought that through the last couple of administrations and and said it sounds very authoritative, but doesn't really mean a whole lot of departments ignore it and there's no stick. So So would you you give them the authority to to make their binding operational directives truly binding? I think that's a good start, uh, for sure. Uh, And again, whether you invest that power in uh, the the Secretary of Homeland Security and the department there, or it's a, a side, a director of cybersecurity or a cybersecurity coordinator that has both policy and budgetary authority, like the U.S. Trade Representative, for example. Mm-hmm. And, and things need to be cleared through the Trade Representative before anything is uh, funds are spent, uh, or the, 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 the drugs are, if you will. Uh, that this coordination and and this more of a there's more authority and, and you're, you're doing a coordinated effort and response. I think that's the important. Somebody has to have that. That ability right now, nobody does. Yeah, I, I, it's often hard to sell White Houses on the idea that they should have people inside the White House who have a, have made promises to get confirmed to the Senate. Uh, uh, I, I, my view has always been that the White House um, is so attuned to what the president wants, whoever he is, uh, uh, that anybody who has a conflicting set of obligations gets looked at askance and then excluded from the important meetings. That's unfortunate. Yeah, sure. but I, 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 the the drug czar is a good example. I, I don't think people think of him as uh, a White House uh, uh, being part of the White House in most respects. That's where he's technically housed, but uh, uh, I'm not sure that the president is is inviting him to uh, a lot of uh, meetings other than the ones that he asks for. So I. I uh, I, I do think it's unfortunate that they got rid of the uh, uh, coordinator, but what I'm sure they would say is we're doing plenty of coordination as it is, uh, and uh, um, Treasury and the Justice Department have worked very well, at, along with the Commerce Department, to impose sanctions on people who steal uh, uh, data, who violate uh, uh, sanctions, uh, uh, who steal Bitcoin. Uh, or use Bitcoin from uh, ransomware. Right? Uh, so there is coordination going on. Uh, it's just not happening through somebody with the with the title. Well, I think uh, coordination does happen informally, and and I think that uh, you know it's is uh, fine. But uh, you have to see a more uh, formalized role, if you will. Yeah. And um, what about uh, breach notification? Is that going to be something that the Democrats are going to take up in the House? I, I certainly hope so, and, and that's my, I, have a, I have a bill in to uh, uh, data breach notification. Right now we have 50 states with 50 different uh, data breach notification laws. Uh, I think it makes more sense to have one uniform standard, so my bill would be a uniform 30-day standard on data breach notification. The FTC would be the coordinating agency to respond, coordinate response, and and determine whether or not customers need to be notified or not uh, uh, of, of data being taken. Uh, 
and incentivizes really businesses to, to do more to protect their own data. For example, if data is encrypted and it gets stolen, well, it's rendered useless by the fact that it's encrypted. So presumably companies wouldn't have to right. uh, um, uh, notify customers because there'd be no harm to their, their data. It's rendered useless if it's encrypted. So again, I, uh, uh, I am going to push for my bill to get through the Congress, but uh, you know, it's, I think it's something that has to happen eventually. It, it, it's been kicking around for so long, and preemption was always the the hard issue. Are are the are, is the federal standard going to replace the uh, uh, the the fifty plus state laws? Uh, do you think that's going to be the key question in the uh, debate between the House and the Senate and among the Democrats? I think preemption is is essential. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, it just becomes the fifty first uh, <laughs> uh, data breach law, if you will. And so, you know, why not have, uh, when I, I'd rather have 51 standards, so let's have one uh, uniform standard. I think it's in business interest and customers' interest to have, uh, you know, that kind of a, uh, of a mechanism going forward. The, the customer data needs to be protected. Uh, let's have a uniform standard to do it. So, last question on this topic, uh, Cyber Command. You've seen them up close. Um, they've gone through growing pains, obviously. Uh, um, how do you think they're doing? What's good about Cyber Command and what do they still need to work on? Uh, I am I'm pleased with the, uh, the progress that U.S. Cyber Command is making. Uh, the 133 teams that's reached FOC operating capability uh, in May of 2018 and uh, they will continue to mature mature and uh, we want to make sure that they have the resources to do their job effectively uh, ongoing training and recertification is going to be uh, it's going to be important but there are the different missions and protecting the dota and and uh, and, um, and uh, having the, the teams that are in place to assist combat commanders to achieve the uh, the um, uh, mission in theater is essential. We're never going to see modern warfare again without some type of, a, type of a cyber component to it. And so having those uh, those teams in place, working with the command commanders is important. And then um, and then the national mission teams that are uh, being more proactive and and uh, going out and you know targeting the bad guys that are targeting us. Uh, that's another important mission that they are going to take. And that's the defending forward part of uh, uh, yeah. their approach, yeah. Yeah. getting yeah. into the networks of adversaries. Yeah. The national mission before. teams, right? Yeah. yeah. And then you have the, uh, uh, the combat mission teams. So, When I hear criticisms of Cyber Command, it's that they are not likely to make a strategic difference, or nothing that they have done up to this point in a conflict or in preparing for a conflict has been... Uh, of truly significant uh, impact. Uh, do you buy that criticism? No, I think they're having a, a very positive impact. You know, we're not going to know about uh, everything per right, se, obviously. Um, and um, but I, I, I absolutely believe that they uh, they have had and will continue to have an impact. So I I, I have to say uh, uh, because I spent a fair amount of time in Rhode Island, I've been to the. Bristol Fourth of July Day Parade and Fourth of July Parade of the country. Yes, exactly. Seventeen seventy six or so, or practically. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and um, uh, I saw you go by uh, in what looked like a Segway version of your uh, wheelchair. It, it, does, does this chair, this uh, is the chair. stand up? Yeah, yeah, it does. It's a 
So the, this chair the, called an iBot was invented by the same inventor of the Segway, Dean Kamen. And uh, it's a great piece of technology. So it's both in is four-wheel drive as well as uh, the balance mode where you pop it up on wow. two wheels. And, um, yeah, it's, a, it's changed my life and given me a lot more independence. And, yeah, because you know when you're up on two wheels in the balance mode, being able to talk to people at eye level is so. It nice. makes a difference. In, in my business, it? I'm such a social business, and being able to talk to people eye to eye is uh, important. So when I go on the house floor and I'm talking to colleagues, I'm doing it from you know equal footing, if you will. Okay, so so you 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 do use it here in the in the house. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. absolutely. And uh, and uh, and, and it, if I go on site visits and things like that, for example, even on. You know, rough terrain, construction sites, or ground rakings, and you can put it in four-wheel drive, and this will go like a dune buggy on rough terrain and sand. It can even take it on the on the beach. It's a, uh, it's a pretty capable piece of equipment. So, so your, your your paralysis clearly moved you in the direction of the career you've uh, uh, found. It was uh, was an accident, wasn't it? Uh, it was. I was a police cadet or explorer scout when I was a teenager, and I. Fell in love with law enforcement. Uh, I thought that would be my career, and I was involved in the cadet program for four years. Um, and unfortunately, I was in the locker room of the police station one afternoon, and uh, two police officers looking at a new weapon that one of them had purchased, uh, uh, and uh, didn't he didn't realize it was loaded and pulled the trigger to test it, and the bullet went off, reached out of the locker, went through my neck, and severed my spinal cords. I've been uh, unfortunately paralyzed uh, since I was 16 years old. Uh, but I had a deep appreciation for public service even back then. I thought it was going to be in law enforcement. And uh, one thing led to another. But I had great community support and people rallying around, as I said, uh, my family and I. And uh, it made me want to get back in some way. I started getting more and more interested in government. And the next thing you know, someone had suggested I run for political office, and I did. And, and I thought that was a good way of, of starting the process of giving back. Uh, but I didn't think it was going to be a lifelong career. But I found something that not only did I feel like I was giving back, but it was something, something I really enjoyed. And uh, one thing led to another, and um, I kept uh, kept running for different offices, and it's worked out pretty well. So yeah, I'm no, that's grateful right. for the support of people back home and, and also for the opportunity to make a difference for, for, for the folks I represent. Well, Congressman Langevin, uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you, and thank you very much for your candor. Thank you very much. Great to be with you. I appreciate your your expertise and the, the attention you bring to the topic of, of cybersecurity. I hope we can continue to uh, talk further. Terrific. I'll see you Fourth uh, of July in Bristol. Sounds good. <laughs> All right. Thanks. Okay. Uh, a special thanks to Representative Langevin, uh, to Denise Howell, who was terrific, uh, and to Nate Jones, Gus Horowitz, and Nick Weaver for joining me. This has been episode 243 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Um, we're going, apart from letting the cryptocurrency folks take over the podcast next week, you're not going to hear from me until January. Uh, uh, so uh, everybody gets a, a, a Christmas break uh, from all the bad news which seems to be pretty much all we cover. Uh, have a great uh, holiday, and we'll see you back in January. Be sure to send us suggestions for guest interviewees, uh, for comments uh, uh, and suggestions. Uh, send them to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, uh, please do leave us a rating for our show. That's how people find us. Uh, and I have promised to read the most entertaining reviews, uh, um, good or bad. And uh, 
the credits. Uh, Lori Paul and Christy Jorge are our producers. Jeff Kessler is our audio engineer. Michael Beaver is our intern. I'm Stuart Baker, your host. Please join us again in January as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.